Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Matt Fernandez. But before we get on to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Here's a review from the Chiropractic Science website uh, from Dr. Robert Shealy, who says, I just finished listening and wanted to tell you how wonderful it was to hear a review of Dr. Christine Gertz's research experience. Dr. Smith, your podcast should be required listening to all practicing chiropractors. I actually believe the general public would find your podcast of great interest as many want to find out more information about chiropractic. Well, thank you, Dr. Sheely, for listening and sharing your feedback. If you'd like to leave an audio review that I might include on a future episode, just connect on Facebook or send me an email. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website, chiropracticscience.com, by making a donation. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Matt Fernandez. Matt is a registered chiropractor in Australia and is currently a senior lecturer at Central Queensland University, where he teaches and supervises students in the Master of Chiropractic program. Prior to his CQU appointment, he was a lecturer at the Department of Chiropractic at Macquarie University. Matt is a very passionate uh, about research, and following the completion of his PhD at the University of Sydney, he now leads research projects and supervises research students. He also regularly presents his research at conferences in targeted areas that advances the knowledge and understanding of chiropractic through physical activity, exercise, and patient education interventions. Matt is also a member of the inaugural Carl Fellows. Well, Dr. Fernandez, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Hi, Dean. Thanks very much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here today and, and, and have a chat. Yeah, well, I'm really excited. Uh, I mean, this gets into areas that we're, we're both, you know, keen on talking about and, and doing research on. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. And I would just ask you, as, as we get started here, I, I always ask this question of every guest, and that is, can you tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor? Yeah, happy to, happy to chat about that. Um, I guess towards the end of my uh, Bachelor of Sports Science degree, the undergrad degree, I was kind of unsure about what the next uh, path would be for me. I had been... Uh, competing in, in, in swimming events and also uh, surf life-saving events and, and also coaching in that space as well. So from my sports science degree perspective, that was really advantageous uh, from a coaching perspective and also personal. But I was really open to other parts from a career perspective. And it was around that time that my, my dad had reminded me that my brother had, had suffered uh, migraine headaches at school. 
and uh, this was spectacularly uh, sorted out with chiropractic. It was really impactful for my brother, but also for my for my family. And uh, we all know as chiropractors what a full-blown migraine can look like. And um, I quickly remembered that my brother would come home from school early because he was sick. Other times he wouldn't make it and he'd be vomiting on a bus on the way home. And before the success of chiropractic for him, he'd had less success with uh, medication, uh, massage and acupuncture. So that was pretty impactful. And, and look, at the same time, as we were finishing up the undergrad degree, there were uh, naturally students that were looking to go on into further study and some were looking into to physio. And I had a couple of good friends who were looking into chiropractic. So um, chiro seemed to be the road for me. And we enrolled into Macquarie Uni and uh, got a little bit of advanced standing with a, a couple of subjects in the sports science degree and basically went on to complete the degree uh, over the next three years. So, yeah, that was that was more or less how I got into it. That's awesome. It, yeah, it, it does seem that so many of us have these personal experiences in uh, teaching at an undergraduate level. I, I see the same, whether it's people that are interested in getting into PT or chiropractic or med school, uh, you know, they've had those personal experiences. So I appreciate you uh, telling us about that. Well, can you tell us, you know, once you're in chiropractic school and, and uh, let's say, uh, you know, getting close to the end of, of uh, that schooling, uh, what happened next? Did you did you go into practice, um, or were you immediately interested in research? Just uh, maybe tell us about that transition from from uh, chiropractic school to uh, interest in in research and the PhD. Sure. So after uni graduation, I, I did practice for several years, and and most of it was in the in a multidisciplinary clinic. So this was a, an awesome experience for me because I, I got to work with physiotherapists. Uh, massage therapists and a little bit later uh, EPs, exercise physiologists and podiatry. And I was exposed to a lot of techniques which uh, I didn't necessarily know about during my time at university at Macquarie. And so I got exposed to things like spinal mobilization, uh, neurodynamics and also the McKenzie method amongst others. But at the same time, as we all are early on when we start in clinic, we're really inquisitive and, and I sort of reflect back uh, when I was in clinic at the time there, and I was really exposed to a lot of chiropractic techniques as well uh, as an associate, like things like uh, plyokinesiology, NET, and, and in particular, uh, cranial techniques or cranial dental, cranial orthodontic techniques. And look, all of these were, were really fascinating, and I went on to use a, a few of these and, and, and learn a little bit more. But at the same time, I've always had this interest in exercise and manipulation, and, and really, that's what resonated with me. So... I was a sessional staff member at Macquarie, and um, when you're a staff member, as you know, you, you get good opportunities to hear many guest speakers, and uh, at the time, I remember there was a, a research seminar series, and there was a researcher from Sydney University that was presenting data on, on twin studies. And I distinctly remember it was a, a review, a systematic review on the topic, where they looked at the potential impact of genetics and the environment, and epigenetics as we know it. And they were looking at back pain and other musculoskeletal problems and the influence of genetics. And they also talked about the relationship of uh, uh, low back pain and chronic diseases, including diabetes, uh, sleep problems, heart attacks, cardiovascular disease, mental health, and uh, how it resonated with back pain. And, and more or less, this, this work hadn't really been done. So obviously, these are huge public health topics, and they were 
of great interest to me because we know exercise or physical activity can impact those. And during that talk, I got the sense from the speaker that these ideas or projects were kind of ready to go and they just needed someone to do it. So I, I, I met up with the speaker who was uh, Dr. Paulo Ferreira, who's, who's now a professor, and he was leading this pathway. And, you know, fast forward a few conversations, uh, I was successful in getting into the PhD program because I'd done a little bit of publishing prior. I was successful with a um, PhD scholarship from the generous funding from COCA, which is now uh, known as uh, Chiropractic Australia. And off I went on a new journey. I started at Sydney University. I started my PhD at the uh, Department of Physiotherapy. And I, I had four supervisors. Uh, Paolo was, was the primary, but also had a, a really you know, hot team uh, that was made up of um, Manuela Ferreira, um, also the Dean Kathy Ripshorgi, and someone who's well known to, to chiropractic, uh, Dr. or Professor Jan Havikson as well. So I had a really good team, and I went on to um, you know, publish five papers in my PhD. Two of them were meta-analyses looking at, at sciatica or radiculopathy, and we looked at the impact of surgery versus uh, physical activity for sciatica, and then also we looked at uh, specific structured exercise compared to advice to stay active for sciatica. And uh, we followed up with the twin studies as well. We did a number of observational studies. We, we looked at um, uh, low back pain and associations to heart attacks, uh, depression, anxiety, and also low back pain and all-cause mortality. And, and that study, we, we titled it, uh, My Back Pain is Killing Me, and it actually generated a lot of uh, media interest because, as we know, the media can sensationalize things and started printing out things like, if you have back pain, you're going to die earlier. But, <laughs> yeah. of course, we know, we yeah. know this is not true. You know, the, the proper title should have been, you know, poor health uh, sees us, you know, dying earlier. But, you know, that wouldn't have sold any newspapers. So, um, <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, that that was that was um, you know something interesting and and look to to be honest, I I, I sort of I wasn't until the last year of my PhD I decided oh, I want to try and go into a full time role in academia and uh, I was successful in, in getting to Macquarie Uni as a full time um, uh, staff member after my PhD and I was there for almost three years and you know it was a great team and but you know. From a personal perspective, there was a, a sea change looming for my family and I, a young family, and we moved up to the Sunshine Coast, which is north of Brisbane in Queensland. And at the same time, there's an opportunity to join CQU, Central Queensland Uni, and I was successful and, and now I've been there just over two years as a senior lecturer. And, and again, like Macquarie, this is a, a really great course there, a great team and uh, great opportunities for research. So, yeah, I guess, Dean, that's, that's been my path. Well, Matt, what a what a cool journey! Uh, you know, really uh, great team you've surrounded yourself with, uh, excellent mentors, and uh, you know that I do remember that study that uh, you were talking about with the, uh, the relationship with back pain and and heart disease, and uh, yeah, that uh, generated definitely a lot of attention. And it, I mean, there are some really interesting relationships there. There's no doubt, back pain and almost any comorbidity essentially. It seems like um, so. Uh, I, if you could uh, tell us, you know, now that you're at CQU, what what does your typical day look like? Yeah, so at CQU, I, I teach in the masters program, so the fourth and fifth years. Uh, in the fourth year program, I, I assist with uh, spinal skills and, and neuro classes, and and I lead the um, the peripheral skills classes or the extra spinals, as it's called. Uh, which has an element of orthopedics in it as well. 
And in the uh, fifth year or the final year, I, I teach pediatrics and pregnancy and also sports medicine. So in that final year, we, we try to provide a, a bit of a wholesome experience for the students. So we encourage them to go out and observe these specialist practitioners in their clinics. We also bring in uh, specialist clinicians in the fields of peds, pregnancy and sports medicine. So they conduct specific uh, you know, four-hour workshops for our students and also this year, I started to interview uh, via a podcast for these specialist clinicians as well. So there'd be 30-minute uh, chats, if you like, on uh, topics like pregnancy and pediatric sports medicine. And this was for the benefit of our students, uh, in addition to delivering the traditional you know, lectures and tutorials. Uh, and there, we really try and focus on implementing some contemporary research that's out there for these topics. So... That's my teaching. For research, uh, we have students, as, as you mentioned at the start, we, we have MRS students. They, they, you know, we've got students exploring fascinating topics like behavioural change, uh, also chiropractic in the older population. And we've received some funding to explore the experiences of patients who consult spinal surgeons, but they're discharged on their consultation or dismissed, and they're considered a non-surgical candidate. And, and, and we know from experience that these patients have been on wait lists for a long time. Their expectation is that they have a structural problem and therefore this can only be fixed through surgery. So we want to know how they feel when they're discharged and dismissed. So we probably get a sense of how they feel because they, they sort of re-enter the system and, and they end up having a, a, a second opinion or so forth. But we've also got some, some money to look at some qualitative uh, work to look at the experiences of patients and chiropractors with respect to physical activity promotion. And also, I'm interested in swimming, as I mentioned at the start, so I'm keen to explore swimming and low back pain care, whether it's more prevention or more from a, a self-management perspective. Uh, to my knowledge, there's only one trial that's looked at this, which is somewhat surprising given the, the benefits of swimming and health. And I do do a little bit of clinic too as well now. Uh, I've just re-engaged in the practice a tiny bit. You know, I had a few years off during COVID, uh, obviously moving into state, but I think, Dean, you can relate to this as everyone else can, is that as chiropractors, we have a, a tremendous set of skills, particularly with our hands and our knowledge. And, you know, we, we from time to time get a really amazing results with our patients and, and we make such an impact on their lives that, you know, to me, it seems almost silly that I would give that up. So I'm, I'm glad I'm sort of practicing a little bit too as well. Yeah, 100% agree. And, you know, I just I have to think, at least for myself, that the interactions with patients guide the research in some degree. I mean, they just keep you curious. And I mean, honestly, they just generate so many questions. I mean, I get so many questions after an encounter uh, that, uh, you know, I try to write them down sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, it just uh, it just keeps going, right? It's like a, it's, it's a nice circle of uh, experience, practice, research, and it all comes around, so... It does. And as you say, you know, you, you get asked questions that stumps us. Sometimes we don't have the answers, but I often say, you know what, it's okay. I don't know the answer, but I'll find out for you. I'll do my best to find out. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Well, Matt, uh, we're going to be talking about physical activity and exercise. Uh, again, two things we're pretty passionate about. You've, uh, you've conducted some really interesting research uh, as it relates to physical activity and exercise, I think uh, essentially more than anybody in, in the profession. And so I'm keen to get your ideas about, uh, you know, what's going on in the profession exercise-wise and physical activity-wise. And 
what I figure we could do is we could talk about a few of your articles and then we could use those articles as sort of a, a baseline or a springboard, if you will, for a general conversation about physical activity and, and how that relates to chiropractic practice. So uh, without further ado, maybe we should just get into uh, our first article and this would be uh, titled The Prevalence and Determinants of Physical Activity Promotion by Australian chiropractors, a cross-sectional study. This was in complementary uh, uh, therapies and, and medicine, and this was uh, 2019. So if you could uh, walk us through through that paper, that'd be great. Sure. So prior to this paper, uh, I don't think, I guess as you mentioned, there wasn't a great deal to go from in regards to physical activity in chiropractic. So we do know chiropractors are trained, educated in diagnosis and management in a, a broad range of musculoskeletal conditions. Uh, you know, we're known as spine uh, doctors or experts, and but also chiropractors are, are broadly recognised as well as advocates for, for active lifestyle, uh, general wellness, and, and health promotion. And the limited literature that was out there prior to some of the studies that we conducted. Uh, showed that at least 90% of chiropractors were prescribing or advising on physical activity or exercise, particularly in their consultations. But much more than that, we, we didn't know. So, you know, we, we, we looked at this study that you've, you've described in uh, complementary therapies and medicine. And, and just a bit of background to, to this study. This is a um, this was part of the Australian Chiropractic Network uh, Research Network, or the ACORN project, and and this was a, a national practice-based study for chiropractic that, that was launched in in around two two fifteen, I think, and so a lot of effort came in, and it was uh, sponsored by the uh, ACA or CAA at the time, and and they they managed to capture responses to a survey of more than 2,000 Australian chiropractors. And we looked at uh, a secondary analysis of this data so we could target physical activity. And we've really focused on the practitioner characteristics, their practice settings and their clinical management characteristics as it related to physical activity. And obviously to do this, we we utilise some regression analyses uh, to identify factors that you know strongly associate with practitioners who would frequently discuss physical activity with their patients. And I can go through some of the results, but they won't be surprising. Um, for example, we found that chiropractors that frequently discussed activity, physical activity, were at least six times more likely to talk about OHS or occupational health and safety, at least three times likely to discuss diet and nutrition four times more likely to discuss substance abuse, uh, including uh, smoking and alcohol and, and drugs, uh, four times more likely to be engaging in injury prevention, exercise therapy, rehab, uh, including taping, and twice as likely to be caring for uh, athletes and sports people. So as I mentioned, all of these relate together and are not surprising, but, but at least to us, as per any secondary analysis, it does sort of pave the way to look at further research questions and give us a chance to maybe evaluate the role and the contribution that chiropractors are making in this, uh, I guess, really important public health topic. So, yeah, in a nutshell, that's that's some of the um, the, the findings from that paper. Yeah, it, I mean, it seems that if I if I had to generalize it, and, and you can correct me if if you think otherwise, but it seems to me that the chiropractors who are generally uh, promoting or discussing exercise are are also promoting other health related issues. Um, you know, trying to uh, just 
promote public health in general. Uh, would, would, do you think that would be accurate? I would tend to agree. I think given that the relationships are, are strong from a, you know, the odds of you know, doing one thing or the odds of likely to do something very related, yeah, absolutely. I think that we would definitely you know, um, expand the discussion and, and move into other related topics, as you mentioned. Yeah, for sure. It'd be, it's a genuine assumption. Yeah. So let's do that then. Let's talk about just physical activity, I, I guess, in general. Uh, perhaps we could talk about physical activity guidelines. Um, just give some thoughts to chiropractors who who may be interested in incorporating exercise or, or just simply want to have, uh, they just want to listen to a discussion about uh, uh, people who, you know, study exercise and do research in this area talk about, you know, what's uh, what is it happening in, in practice uh, these days with exercise? So uh, maybe we could start with that physical activity guidelines and, and then we can just uh, work our way through some of these issues. Sure, sure. So the guidelines, uh, as we know it, um, generally people will talk to 150 minutes per week of moderate or maybe you know 75 minutes of uh, more vigorous physical activity per week. And just some context with the guidelines, they, they seem to be updated every 10 years. So people might remember the 2010 guidelines and we're currently working with the 2020 guidelines. And the WHO, World Health Organization, and particular researchers and stakeholders in the area will probably meet in 2027 to prepare the guidelines for 2030. So they'll, they'll look at all the relevant research. But um, the narrative hasn't changed too much, but there are some interesting additions to the 2020 guidelines which will be of, of benefit. And the first is that they recommend physical activity more so across the lifespan. So there's specific recommendations to children and adolescents, obviously our working age adults, but importantly too, they move on to recommendations for older adults as well. Another aspect that's important is that they include uh, people with disabilities, people that have chronic diseases, and uh, pregnant women and postpartum women too as well because uh, the, the latter three, uh, when... They hit the transition point in their lives, be it uh, chronic disease, disability or, or postpartum. There's an element there which may see a person somewhat retire from physical activity given the transition and, and the, the elements that go with it. And they may not necessarily re-engage with activity. So they're important populations or subpopulations. The 2020 guidelines also made special mention towards the benefits of activity with regards to mental health. So in particular, depression and anxiety, but also the importance of staying active for good uh, cognitive function. They also took time to talk about sedentary behaviour, so we can have the good and not so good behaviour. Uh, good behaviour would be things like, and this is targeting children more so, things like doing homework and reading. And the not so good is the technology of excess screen time, tablets, phones, etc. A final thing that the um, guidelines did too as well is they removed the 10-minute continuous activity uh, that was dropped from the guidelines because more recent research sort of showed that you could reach a lower threshold and get benefits from physical activity. So you could do things for um, 30, 60 seconds, for instance. And a lot of this has come about through device-based measurements, so the use of uh, actigraphs or accelerometry-based instruments. So they were able to highlight a number of different areas where our traditional self-reported information that... that uh, the guidelines are derived from couldn't really measure. So, 
Yeah, they're, they're some of the key things, I think, uh, at least for a chiropractor, that we could take home in regards to the guidelines. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned the the sort of sensor technology-based way to assess physical activity. I can't tell you how many times patients of mine come in and, you know, they're wearing a Fitbit and they say, Doc, you know, let me show you what I've got for the week. And, and I mean, some of these uh, watches have heart rate variability and they tell you about your sleep. And, I mean, it, it's some pretty fascinating technology on there. And, uh, you know, I, I would certainly encourage it. I, I want to mention one other thing, too. You said the change in the guidelines from, you know, trying to achieve uh, at least 10 minutes and now it's it's basically fluctuating to just, you know, get get any activity. Any activity is better than no activity or, or less activity. Um, so I think that is uh, is a great uh, shift. And and I have to say that saying something like that versus, you know, try to do 150 minutes to somebody who's not particularly active is a much easier go. <laughs> it's a better sell, isn't it? It's, it's a it's much better sell. Feasible and achievable too, as well. And uh, you know, as we know, we, we look at musculoskeletal conditions all the time, and that's a big barrier to exercise. So, yeah, anything that can be done, and, and as you say, you know, dropping that ten-minute uh, threshold has been a big thing. Yeah, totally. And I know, you know, as we were talking before, um, uh, before today, we just, you know, we had a conversation before, and you mentioned about incidental activity, even, and how that can add up over time. Uh, why don't you uh, just tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So this is coming off the back of the devices that, that we just had a chat about there. And, and um, the thing about devices is it can actually pick up uh, various intensities or bouts of exercise, whereas our traditional questionnaires uh, can't necessarily or don't necessarily pick this up. And when we talk about incidental activity, we talk about um, – three to five bouts of vigorous activity, if you like, that occur as a consequence of what we do in our daily lives. And for example, it might be uh, engaging in, you know, 15, 30, 45, 60 seconds of activity throughout the day. It might be things like, you know, sprinting to catch a bus or to catch a train. You might be on the trampoline playing with children for a couple of minutes, getting the heart rate up. It may be something that, that challenges the, the, the muscular system, for instance, uh, carrying groceries to the car. It might be a long walk back to the car park. Uh, and if you do a couple of these things during the day, particularly, as you mentioned before, for the non-exerciser, someone who has musculoskeletal problems, this can really work for them. And the research is at least showing that there are potential benefits of doing this incidental activity that can be quite equivalent to what the gains are with respect to vigorous activity or guideline recommendations. So there's certainly emerging research that shows that you can get benefits from things that are just happening incidentally, things that are not planned. And therefore, if you're doing them as part of your daily life, it's, it's very feasible to do maybe a few more. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, I wanted to just clarify a couple of terms that, that I've used just Again, for clarity, uh, we sometimes throw around these terms exercise and physical activity. I'm not sure that everybody knows that there's a, there is a difference between them, at least the way researchers talk. So I just want to clarify that uh, physical activity basically is any type of body movement where your muscles are, are doing work and, and moving you around. 
But exercise is more of a planned activity. It, it's structured and, you know, I'm going to go out and do a walk, you know, for my health type of thing. Uh, and, the, and the idea there is to maintain your, your physical fitness. So just wanted to throw that out there uh, because I know, you know, sometimes we use these terms and, and they should be defined because uh, there is a bit of a difference. Um, okay. How about uh, strength training? How, how do you... Um, how do you think about that in relationship to what we were talking about guidelines? So strength training is, is interesting and it's definitely part of the guidelines. It's very critical. I think as, as we get older, it's obviously very important for, for our older population that, um, you know, we, we enter a field of um, osteoporosis and, and uh, muscle mass loss or sarcopenia. But the guidelines are consistent and recommend uh, at least two sessions of strength training or resistance training a week. And uh, I, I think from a patient perspective, it's, it's what's most convenient. And we know what's convenient is to be using body weight, you know, your own body weight, for example. And uh, to be honest, I think if you combine this with the aerobic activity recommendations, I think both of them together are probably best, to be honest. Yeah, totally. Totally. And um, we'd also, prior to today, talked a little bit about some of the uh, other benefits of exercise. And you actually threw out a few that I wasn't particularly thinking about, or I don't you know, necessarily think about all the time. Um, and those were recovery and, and regeneration issues. Um, normally, I would think about you know, maximizing tissue tolerance and that sort of thing. Uh, through exercise, maybe maximizing performance, but uh, maybe you could just speak for uh, for a few seconds about the recovery and regeneration ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 almost like a reward for doing your activity, you know? and I think a lot of this depends on, you know, who's in front of you. If you've got that uh, elite athlete or semi-professional athlete, weekend warrior versus uh, someone who has uh, musculoskeletal pain, I, I think for the first if we're looking at, at athletes or sports participants, you know, they have great exposure in general to uh, recovery aids and we're familiar with many of them from uh, compression gear to uh, massage therapy and ice baths, which is, which is quite topical these days. But uh, we know that sleep is probably the best in this instance. And then, you know, on the other side of the coin, you, you've got our musculoskeletal patients, people that um, we're more likely to see. And to them, it might be totally different. It, it's more a case of, you know, getting them active and, and moving. And, and uh, before we start thinking of that recovery, regeneration, restoration aspects, uh, it's more about maybe gradually exposing them to uh, what they see as fearful tasks. So, you know, we want to engage activity in a really non-threatening or perhaps in a, in a very safe environment. So, um, yeah, I sort of feel as though we need to jump that hurdle first before we, we introduce them in the recovery. But, you know, we naturally would use these regeneration elements as part of our care anyway, if you think about it, don't you? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> no doubt. And everybody's got a bit of a progression. I mean, if, if they come in acutely, certainly we can't do the performance issues. We've we got to get through the basic elements, <laughs> you know, get to uh, facilitate the range of motion, make sure there's stability, uh, those sorts of things before we can really progress. Um, and speaking about progressing through exercise, um, I wouldn't mind at some point during our discussion talking about the fit principle or just how we manipulate exercise to achieve, um, the type of performance that we're looking for, whether it's to try to alleviate pain, 
uh, from a musculoskeletal standpoint or to maximize performance or recovery or any of these other goals. But I, I almost wonder, maybe we should talk about that coming up because I think we're going to be getting into more of the clinical issues after we talk about this next paper. Um, so why don't we do that? Let's talk about this next paper. And uh, this is uh, one that just came out uh, this uh, just a few months ago, actually. Uh, and this is Physical Activity Promotion in Chiropractic, a Systematic Review of Clinician-Based Surveys. Uh, and this was in Chiropractic and Manual Therapy. So uh, I wonder if you could walk us through this paper. Sure. So this was a review that we decided to just include surveys. And in the end, we, we found 15 surveys all up that were relevant to physical activity in chiropractic. And collectively, that included almost 8,000 chiropractors. A, a past review sort of looked at this question, uh, not to the depth that we looked at it, and uh, we ended up finding five times more the number of articles compared to that previous review. Uh, up front, as you know, Dean, it's important to assess any paper for its quality, and, and certainly we had some methodological quality issues in that we lacked a high uh, number of high-quality studies. And the weaknesses from the questionnaires often came from missing data, um, small numbers, so we had uh, non-representative samples, and uh, with small numbers, uh, there was uh, low response rates. So this, uh, you know, had the capacity to, you know, challenge the certainty of the results that we find. But in saying that, that we did find some some results that probably uh, won't surprise people again. I think that we, we sort of broke down the questionnaires and broke them down into different themes where they best fit. And we found that, uh, you know, almost 100% of chiropractors saw physical activity information or counselling or discussion as, as important. Uh, more than 90% of chiropractors were prepared to provide physical activity or exercise information or possibly counsel patients. Um, up to 97% frequently obtained uh, physical activity information from their patients. I mean, what they ask, we're not sure, but they, they look to extract information, probably asking them about how active they were. Uh, almost 100% frequently discussed or provided uh, physical activity information for their patients. But when it came to counselling directly, um, around 50 to 81% of chiropractors uh, did this with this patient. And I, I do acknowledge in this paper the lines may be a little bit blurred when it comes to discussing physical activity versus counselling for physical activity. And I think, at least to me, the counselling aspect was more in relation to a clinician mentoring the patient, uh, you know, spending more time talking about the particular topic and, and possibly looking at action planning. So the, the clinician leads the way and shows the patient what they should do, why they should do it, where they should do it, how they should do it. So they, they took on a coaching role, whereas the... Um, the discussion of chiropractic and physical activity with patients was more about, you know, just simply, you know, chatting about it. So, yeah, in a nutshell, that was that was the elements that we found in regards to, to that paper. Okay, great. Well, <clears throat> from that, and, and uh, I'll just mention that here in uh, <clears throat> North America, I think the last uh, survey that I'm familiar with um, – indicated that a little over 90% of chiropractors incorporate physical activity in some way, either again, through counseling or, um, you know, recommending physical activity in some shape or form or another. Uh, so I, I think that's really interesting. And uh, it just seems like most chiropractors are interested in, in lifestyle are interested in, you know, promoting the overall health of, of, 
their patients and trying to incorporate many ways to do that. So I think it's converging evidence in my mind. Um, certainly we could always, uh, you know, use better, better quality studies, but, uh, that the data does seem to be converging on that. And I guess the question in my mind is what is it exactly that chiropractors do in their practices? I mean, I know what I do, uh, you know what you do, but do we have a general, do we have a sense really, um, for how often chiropractors discuss physical activity? Like, is it on a daily, vi- daily visit, you know, or, or, uh, each visit basis, or is it like on re-exams or whatever you want to call it, reassessments? Uh, just curious what your, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that, that's a good one. I, I think the answer off the top of my head is, I don't know because obviously I can only vouch for, for my clinical experience and, and what I discuss with patients. And I think more to the point, we, we make the recommendation in the paper that uh, we should consider physical activity as a vital sign. We should be asking about it at each consultation. We should be, if we're not asking, we should start asking about it. And if we're not comfortable, we should utilize a small validated questionnaire questionnaires, for instance, that are available that might take 60 seconds to to complete. And then, you know, that'll, that'll put you into one of four categories from not being active to being sufficiently active. And, and that gives you the opportunity to uh, start the conversation too as well. So we currently actually, related to the question, I guess we, we currently have a paper that's in review where we uh, surveyed Australian chiropractors and, and um we tried to dig in a little bit deeper to look at the management characteristics and see if we could tease out things like that. And and I don't think we could tease out exactly the sort of things that you're after, but, but we certainly found some interesting factors and, and, and happy to elaborate with that if you like. Yeah, um, yeah. Love it. We, we, we found that when we looked at the management characteristics of Australian chiropractors, they were not surprisingly likely to treat working age adults, but also it closely followed uh, older people, uh, 65 years and over, and also likely to manage, uh, you know, athletes and sports people. So you would think if we're constantly seeing these uh, types of patient presentations, you'd like to think based on the percentages we spoke about earlier, that they are receiving some form of physical activity information. But within our, our study, we did find some interesting results in relation to uh, pregnancy and, and our youth populations. So when we ran our regression analysis again, we, we found that Australian chiropractors who were more likely to promote physical activity were actually 50% less likely to discuss physical activity in a number of subpopulations. And that included uh, pregnancy and postpartum women and also youth, so our children and uh, our adolescents. And this is somewhat concerning, I would think, and it probably highlights that a chiropractor may not have uh, a good knowledge base of the, the guidelines. Um, they're confident in, in talking about physical activity, and, and that may come to uh, come off the, the back of them being physically active themselves, and we, we found a high percentage of chiropractors were very physically active. But when we tested them about their knowledge base of the guidelines, at least in Australia, one in three were not at all familiar with the guidelines. And this was consistent with other healthcare providers, including uh, podiatry and nursing, 
physiotherapists too as well, not only in Australia, but also uh, overseas in, in America and in the, in the UK. But but back to our, our survey and the fact that uh, chiropractors who were promoting physical activity were less likely to promote to um, uh, the youth and also pregnant patients to the youth was, was critical because we know sedentary behaviour is an enormous issue. Um, but to our pregnant and postpartum women, um, it also raises a possibility that uh, chiropractors are providing no information in regards to physical activity because maybe they're not confident to do so. And worse still, misinformation. For example, you might get advice that we know is not true, such as don't do exercise because it could harm you and it could harm the baby. So certainly it was quite eye-opening some of the results whereas other results uh you know provide a, a straightforward answer and it's like well that seemed obvious and yeah, that was expected so yeah um interesting totally interesting i want to follow up on a couple of things one uh is the i think it was really key thing that you said about treating the physical activity as an opportunity. I, what a perfect way to say that. I, and I hope this conversation that we're having now opens up uh, some of that opportunity for chiropractors in practice to explore these issues, such important issues with their, with their own patients, their own populations. Uh, the second part was an opportunity to dispel, let's say misinformation or myths like uh like with the youth, I mean, sometimes I get questions such as if I, if my child strength trains, are they going to stunt their growth? You know, I mean, there, there are so many interesting, strange questions that, uh, that we all have. And, uh, you know, with, with that one, you know, there, there just really isn't any evidence that it's going to stunt your growth, uh, Although I can't point to any of that, it's going to make your growth that much better either. But, um, you know, well-supervised strength training in, in children um, is, is a safe activity. And, uh, you know, the same thing goes for other subpopulations like the elderly. I mean, you know, within your, your clinical reason, uh, you know, strength training the elderly is another population or subpopulation that, you know, really needs the exercise, especially if they're frail. Uh, so anyways, I just wanted to throw, throw that out there as well. Very critical. Uh, you're spot on. So Matt, uh, with, with the uh, research that you're doing now, I, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, what do we know about the, the actual types of physical activity that is being prescribed? Is it... Is it more, do you think, uh, physical activity for promotion of health, or do you think uh, it, it is more therapeutic exercise targeted at a condition like back pain or neck pain or, or elbow pain or something like that? I think at a stab, um, I think it's both. It's a combination of both. But again, well, I can look back to our, our paper that's in review, and, and I can talk to Australian chiropractors, and, and what we found was... Somewhat surprising because, uh, you know, aerobic activity is, is the headline act, if you like, when it comes to the guidelines. And then we sort of, you know, work our way through and we find resistance training as well. But for Australian chiropractors, we found that resistance training was the more likely one to be prescribed rather than uh, aerobic activity. And, and to me, this seems somewhat logical if we move away from the gyms because we can just go back to using one's body weight for, for resistance. The other thing that was, was quite popular too was... Um, flexibility 
for instance, uh, you know, prescribing stretches, and also balance was a big one as well. But uh, to your question, I, I think, as, as I mentioned before, it is a blend of both exercise, which, uh, you know, you defined it as, as structured and, and prescribed, and, and also just, just being mobile and, and being active. The other thing, too, that we found in our results is that we found our Australian chiropractors were actually quite aware of community-based programs. So things like Tai Chi classes, uh, dance programs, walking groups in particular, and other uh, health coaching aspects. I, I do know there's a, a Get Healthy program that's available. And also we know private health funds also um, uh, provide these opportunities for their members. But, you know, I'm not really sure if it uh, is more so for that rehab goal, if you like, that, that you sort of asked, or is it more for that general health as per, you know, the question? Um, we also don't know what sort of referral relationships chiropractors have there as well. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of feel like there's elements there that, that we've kind of answered, but, uh, you know, as, as always is the case, there's more, more questions than answers. Yeah, well, I can, I can say that I'm really pleased, actually, to hear that, uh, the chiropractors in your survey seem to have a pretty wide network. Uh, they knew where to refer people. They knew what was going on in terms of physical activity. That's that's excellent to hear. Uh, it's it's exciting when uh, I don't know. I just love to hear that <laughs> because uh, it's again, positive. it's positive for us. Yeah, it's totally positive. Uh, it's amazing. Well, Matt, let's get into the to the last article here, and this is uh, uh, again another interesting study. Uh, one that uh, I've heard a lot about. I honestly don't know a whole lot about it. I haven't read too many of the papers on it. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing you speak about it. And it's the, the GLAD program. Uh, This is called GLAD back Australia, a mixed methods feasibility study for implementation. So uh, could you tell us about this, this GLAD program and this uh, feasibility study? Yeah, sure. Happy to, Uh, particularly, uh, as you say, not, too well versed in it, I'm, I'm happy to expand uh, um, in regards to this program. So, so GLADBAC is a, an education and, and structured exercise program for low back pain, and it was uh, born or came about as part of the hip and knee osteoarthritis program that originated in, in Denmark. Importantly for us, this was a feasibility study of implementation Uh, in the Australian context. So we wanted to see whether it would work here like it had in Denmark where it originated from, but also in Canada where uh, Professor Greg Korchuk had had, uh, led that study as well. So from our end, the results in Australia, generally our study appeared feasible to implement. Um, Of the 20 clinicians that we trained, uh, half of them went on to offer the program to their patients and we had uh, significant complications because that was during the uh, first of a couple of uh, COVID lockdowns that we had in Australia. And so our clinicians quickly moved to telehealth. And uh, to be honest, to move that swiftly, I thought it was fairly successful in the way it was delivered on that part. But uh, naturally, we, we did lose some patients too because they were enjoying the uh, the social aspect and somewhat motivational competitive aspect of coming together and exercising together and then they were reduced to you know going to their living room or bedroom and, and doing exercise via a, a camera from the from their phone or from the computer but we found that obviously the covid pandemic there impacted our retention of patients and therefore impacted our data collection 
But we did find some interesting things. The, the first one was that uh, the physiotherapists fared much better than the chiropractors, and we put that down to physiotherapists having experience with the GLAD program, the original hip and knee program. So it seemed as though they had the systems in place in their clinics to easily transition to online, whereas with chiropractors it was a little bit new and, and, and probably somewhat different to their, their, their practice management, the way their clinics work. The second thing which was interesting too was more of our secondary outcomes and we looked at some uh, some of the patient-related outcomes and uh, we were very cautious to report these back because we only had um, you know, a certain number of patients and we had a larger dropout due to COVID. But we did see potential improvements and, and one of the big ones was in the uh, fear avoidance behaviour and uh, we found a, 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 slight, a strong reduction there and, and I think this came back to the education aspect of GLAD back which seemed to work really well, and I'm happy to expand on that in, in a second. But we also found from uh, a physical uh, component, we found that the endurance test that we started at baseline, so we looked at the, um, the isometric low back extensor test and also the isometric uh, uh, trunk flexor test. And, uh, you, you know, Dean, you're familiar with these tests where you would hold them for two or three minutes and see how long a patient can sustain that isometric hold. We found that after the GLAD back program, a lot of our patients actually doubled their isometric time. So that was that was important. So I'm happy to talk more about it if you like, obviously, because um, obviously I, I think the exercise and, and the education in particular is really topical right now too as well. And yeah. I think it can benefit. So Yeah, I, I, I'd be particularly interested, Matt, if you could just uh, very briefly describe the components of the program. So... I gather it, it's supervised with, in this case, either a chiropractor or a, or a physiotherapist, and they're they're guiding people through this program. Uh, so I imagine that it would involve components of you know flexibility, uh, strength training, perhaps with body weight or implements, uh, and and uh, because they did so well in the isometric holds, I imagine there's got to be some some core, you know, uh, spinal stabilization kind of training as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Sure, I'll elaborate on those for sure. Um, so, look, Gladback actually came about, to put, put into context, it's because our low back pain guidelines or recommendations are generally not routinely implemented well. And uh, if you read some of the research, um, it's possible that if we're not implementing these guidelines from high-quality studies, then we may be leading to huge uh, treatment variability for our patients potential uh, wasted resources and uh, potential harms. And when it comes to the harms, I think we relate back to the overuse of imaging or use of scanning, uh, the overuse of surgery for back pain and the overuse of medication, in particular opioids. But important too with the guidelines was was a failure to provide education and advice. And uh, when it came to Gladback, their aims were really to try and translate these guideline recommendations into a, a practitioner-delivered program that was uh, evidence-based and had the goal of providing self-management support. So a lot of it obviously initially is led by the clinician, and uh, it was important for the clinician to impart knowledge so patients made really good decisions. And uh, critical to this was educating patients about low back pain, and ultimately that would lead to more confidence from a patient perspective trying to change their beliefs and fears. Also critical from the clinician was that they provide pain coping tools. 
and uh, it was important for clinicians to talk about uh, more recent work on the trajectories of low back pain. And we're familiar with that, that, you know, once you get it, it doesn't necessarily go away. But important for the glad back participants, it was that we talked about uh, the inevitability of having a flare-up of our lower back pain and for patients to expect it and not fear it and uh, tackle it head on and find ways, find ways in which they could manage it. Another element that was important from a clinician perspective, at least to lead it initially, was that the goal setting was really critical for, for patients. So the goals were very much patient-based and what we found was that you know patients generally wanted to be more active they wanted to have better tolerance of their pain in regards to being in the workplace. It would positively impact their relationships, better sleep, uh, better energy, and just generally coping well with pain. And this was interesting because if we look at our clinician goals, you know, we're going to look at what we were taught. And, you know, that was, you know, to improve range of motion, uh, better alignment, better posture, uh, greater strength, reduction of pain intensity. So at least to me, I found the education aspect to be critical as a starting point for the exercises, but also it was critical because it's probably where we might have our greatest weakness, where we put our chiropractors out of their comfort zone and start to educate and talk about um, you know, these aspects to try and uh, improve patients' knowledge and understanding, improve their confidence, reduce their fear. So with that, I think it's important to maybe just elaborate a little bit on the educational aspects because I think the, the listeners will find this uh, useful. And Gladback really just talked about eight key messages and we can really summarize them in, in four key points. The first one was that, you know, you need to be telling your patients that they, they have the skill set to be physically active and exercise. And the important thing is, is that they can move with variation. So if they're faced with difficulty with a particular movement while performing an exercise or, or painful task, they shouldn't give up or stop and be fearful of it, but rather find a way around it. The other, the other point was there's an emphasis on the pain physiology or the pain neuroscience, if you like. And, and despite people having fear, we want them to still move because we know the body can adapt. It's, it's really bioplastic, if you like. And we bring the brain aspect into this as well. And, and we talk about the brain, brain having the capacity to, to maybe turn pain up and down, a bit like volume control. And that pain is more an alarm, not harm. And definitely that pain doesn't mean tissue damage. And so, uh, and Greg uh, Korchok often talked about, you know, pain being like a, an annoying song in your head that you just can't get rid of. And, and I know we've all had that experience. The other important aspect with the education or the key messages was that often, you know, patients will present with uh, scans that show some sort of uh, deformation, uh, typically a scoliosis or a kyphosis, for example, and um, you know patients will see these and automatically feel as though the pain is is originating from here. But we know, of course, that um, we don't necessarily know that the pain comes from these deformations, and we can definitely be uh, active despite what we see on a scan. And I think the last message was just being active. That you know, reassuring your patients that their back is strong, robust, and 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 made for movement. And that, uh, you know, some of the messages were, you know, action comes before improvement. You know, action may inhibit pain and, and movement is part of the cure, not the cure. So, you know, when it came to the exercises, you had this foundation, which was really important. So that would facilitate exercise engagement. And as you mentioned before, Dean, you know, you were talking about the improvements in the isometric tests and the likelihood of there being core exercises. Well, that is true. 
And to be honest, uh, you know, people when they see, at least when we ran the course in Australia, people were sort of, you know, left uh, somewhat stunned, if you like, because when they saw the exercises, they realised it wasn't rocket science and, and the likelihood of them doing 90% of them already. And as you mentioned, um, a lot of it was body weight and the most equipment that you needed, I think, was just a TheraBand. But the the important aspect was that it was supervised in a group setting. So the clinician, again, had a critical role here because when a patient was engaging in the exercises, they uh, provided problem-solving skills. And that was basically, as I mentioned before, if something was a roadblock or hurting, try a new way, explore a new way, find a variation. Don't worry about having a perfect technique. That, that sort of went out the window and wasn't emphasised. The other one was to, you know, provide it in a group setting, which was so important prior to COVID because the group setting was, was motivational and inspiring, particularly if you saw someone who, who looked somewhat uh, crook or, or not well in regards to their, their back pain, they were still trying. And so if they could do it, you could do it. And so this would challenge their and potentially change their illness beliefs, such as fear avoidance, and also improve that, that self-efficacy where they, they would continue to do the exercises from their workbooks that had different levels, and they would progress and they would talk um, individually with the clinician who was supervising and try and build their capacity. You know, it might mean moving to the next exercise, which was a bit more difficult, or adding more repetitions to that exercise just to build that capacity and at the same time reduce pain. So... I guess in summary, when it came to the exercise delivery, it wasn't about correcting the wrong performance and, uh, you know, perfect technique was not a conversation that was had. In fact, technique was not, not raised at all. It was important to integrate all the educational aspects that I spoke to earlier in every uh, exercise session. Um, as I mentioned prior, the exercise variation was key. But important, the clinician, when the person did the exercise, the clinician really focused on two things. The first was that when they did an exercise like the four-point kneeling, the bird dog for the lower back, the clinician really made a point to tell the patient that you should be feeling this in your lower back and maybe feeling it in, in your buttocks, for instance. And also, it was important for the clinician to transition into a coach, and that is to provide motivation and build the confidence um, and that came from the clinician. So you were just encouraging the patients all the time. I guess the last part of GLAD was that the clinicians were responsible to document the uh, the treatment effects and, and capture information from the patients. So basically, you could collect data for, for research later on. So I guess that was a bit long, but um, hopefully it gives a really good rundown on what GLAD back is. Oh, definitely. I And I actually really appreciate you going through it in that level of detail because uh, I really get a good sense for how these uh, chiropractors and physios were actually, you know, dealing with these uh, individuals or, or in groups, I, I suppose, too, um, and how they were coordinating sessions and, and uh you know, working with the variability, as you said. And I, I guess it, you know, I hear that and I think, well, this sounds like a really positive, you know, intervention in the sense that, again, it provides an opportunity. It, it's just another opportunity to get people better with the focus being positive, you know, do what you can change, you know, vary up, you know, if you can't do this, do it this way. The point is to to get them uh, to be able to do things, we'll say, uh, movements, uh, skills um, that they can. And so I really like the focus on the positive. I, 
uh, I, like I said before, I really didn't have a great sense for what glad was, but I'm, I'm really intrigued. Uh, and it sounds like an awesome program, uh, from, from what you mentioned. So again, thanks for going through that. That was awesome. No problem. It's good. Yeah. So, um, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned guidelines. Um, so I do want to talk about that because inevitably every low back pain guideline that comes out these days seems to talk about, you know, first line, second line, third line types of therapies or, uh, you know, professions that, that may be able to contribute to, uh, to people's back issues. And, you know, ones that keep coming up would be uh, manual therapy, sometimes just explicitly mentioned as spinal manipulation, um, others, education, cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, there's a lot of interventions you mentioned, uh, you know, there should be less focus on the medications, etc. Um, but I want to focus in uh, specifically about the manual therapy and physical activity, since chiropractors, you know, do hands on uh, care typically, and they as we've just talked about this whole time, they do physical activity as well. They're, you know, they're motivating people, they're engaging them in physical activity. So I guess, uh, you know, I guess my thought was, do they go together? And it's just obvious that obviously they do go together. Um, should they go together and how much should they go together? I guess maybe the better question. Yeah, look, I agree. Definitely. They do go together. I mean, if we think manual therapy, and, and as you alluded to correctly, you know, they, they do often specify spinal manipulative therapy. And, you know, that's, that's what a chiropractor does. And, you know, they look at their adjustments. And if we think purely chiropractic, we know that their main tool of, of choice is going to be the adjustment or the manipulation. And if we look at the, the aims of those, obviously there's uh, neurophysiological reflex changes that we get, but also there's movement that we're getting from the joints. And, you know, physical activity is movement as well. So... You know, they're both part of uh, high-quality recommendations for guidelines too because, as you mentioned, there are lots of guidelines out there and not necessarily all of them are of high quality. But uh, thankfully for us, you know, we've had people wade through all the guidelines and, and made recommendations for the high-quality ones and, and be happy to know that manual therapy is in there. But typically, it's not in there in isolation. It's in there as an adjunct to all the others that you mentioned, including advice and reassurance and, and exercise too as well. The other thing too, which which just reminded me now, um, and based on your question, was uh, I remember years ago I, I talked to a, a credentialed McKenzie therapist, and we know with McKenzie or mechanical diagnosis and therapy, very much a hands-off type care. And I remember the McKenzie therapist was was talking at a chiropractic conference and said, you know, chiros and McKenzie therapists are, are closer than you think because um, the McKenzie assessment and and subsequent treatment prescription particularly if you're looking at this derangement, often occurs at that end range. And, uh, you know, he went on to say that, you know, manipulation sort of works in this space as well, at that end range when you're adjusting the spine. So, um, yeah, look, I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly that uh, they do go together and they, you know, they should go together. Gotcha. Well, we, we've talked about, you know, what, what we think chiropractors may be doing uh, in their visits uh, th that we know that a lot of chiropractors are doing, you know, physical activity and, and some, some forms of exercise in their practice. But the, the people that 
maybe are not utilizing it to its optimal uh, potential or people that uh, chiropractors that may not be incorporating it at all or very little in their practice. What do you think some barriers might be for chiropractors to incorporate physical activity and exercise into their practices? Yeah, so again, our results, Australian chiropractors resonated a lot with uh, other healthcare providers when we searched the literature. And the first barrier that chiropractors have is is time. So not having time to sit down and, and talk about uh, maybe physical activity, uh, planning, programming, or even just uh, alluding to the guidelines. A second one is, is reimbursement. It's a very close second. Um, so chiropractors are not getting paid for it, that extra time that they need to, um, you know, need to be covered for. And also another reason which was somewhat surprising is that some chiropractors, you know, had some doubts that talking or discussing physical activity won't actually work because they weren't convinced that there would be any behavior change associated with that. So I found that one interesting as well. That was like a close, that was in the top three. Hmm, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, uh, hmm, yeah, it actually baffles me a little bit, uh, given that uh, we do so much education, uh, it seems, as a profession, just, you know, telling people about their condition and, and uh, you know, trying to be positive and emphasizing, like what you said, the variability and movement, and there are so many opportunities. I really like that as a theme for our, our discussion today. Um, but I, I suppose you're right. And just having maybe some unfamiliarity with an area would, I guess, naturally lead one to probably not talk about it or recommend it as much. That's true. I mean, when you talk about unfamiliarity, we're, we're talking about the guidelines. And I mentioned before in our results, one in three Australian chiropractors were not at all familiar with the guidelines. And uh, this, again, was consistent with other healthcare providers, including physiotherapists and including general practitioners or medical doctors, our podiatrists and also occupational therapists and, and uh, dentists and, and uh, nurses as well. So um, they may know a little bit about it, but in terms of some specific recommendation or, or a prescription, um, there's 30% there that are not familiar at all. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, uh, Matt, how about, uh, could you, could you tell us about, uh, um, you know, pe people, uh, who are listening to the podcast, they, they might be interested, hopefully they're interested in, uh, possibly getting involved in research in some, some way, whether it's writing up a case study or maybe a review article or what have you, um, can you provide any, um, advice to these chiropractors or students about, uh, you know, how they may wish to become uh, researchers or maybe get them on that track. Like anything uh, motivational for them would be awesome. Yeah. So I think we're all inquisitive in nature and, and obviously we're all really curious and, uh, you know, we've always got these questions that roam around our heads, particularly in the clinic and, I guess we've all been to research symposiums and um, we know at the end of a particular presentation there's always time for questions and, uh, you know, we often find that questions from the audience are often amazing and uh, very thought-provoking and uh, typically the, uh, the the speaker may not have the answer and often resonate with the answer that, you know, goes along the lines that 
that research hasn't been done. So if you do have those questions, I think, you know, look to take that next step and maybe do something small about it to start with. Uh, maybe reach out to the researchers that are out there that you're familiar with and uh, have a conversation. I know they'll be open to a conversation. And, you know, if you're not a fit for whatever reason, I know the researchers will at least point you in the right direction. But uh, I think for, for the person engaging in the research themselves, I think there's there's lots to be gained. And, and the first is now you can make a difference and, and a contribution to, to a particular research area or to your profession. And, uh, you know, it can be as simple as collecting a bit of data and then going on to tell the story, if you like. There's certainly um, positives in terms of career advancement. And, um, you know, if you engage in a, you know, MRES or a PhD of sorts, then, you know, there's opportunities to, to travel abroad, uh, to, to go to conferences abroad, but also to go to other uh, research institutions and, and do some time there, which was something that uh, that I did and, and was really impactful. But it, it was more impactful when I got back home and realised how amazing that experience was. And, you know, the other thing is, too, that you, you can become a, a leader somewhat in the field or in the particular topic. And uh, I think a lot of clinicians may be silently sort of sitting there and, and reaching a, a point in their careers, too, when, you know, they, they realise that things are becoming a, a little bit repetitive, if you like, and they probably want to mix it up and not sure how. And, you know, they can deviate slightly and, and you know, be inspired to remain in the profession by contributing to research. So, you know, research becomes an option for them. And uh, I think personally, and, and you know, Dean, to yourself, it's a, it's a rewarding uh, option too as well. So I guess the answer there, at least my advice, is to reach out, you know, throw your idea out there. Um, we are more than happy to have a chat. And, and also my last point would be that if you, you know, maybe check with the researcher and, and see what they've got on offer too as well. So see what their team is doing, uh, see what their funds are currently covering and, and see if that resonates with you and, and um, you know, try and go from there. So, yeah, that, that would be my advice. Well, that's fantastic advice. Uh, really excellent. Well, I tell you what, Dr. Fernandez, this was uh, uh, just a, a really fun conversation. I'm inspired to, to do a lot more exercise uh, next day in the clinic here. So, <laughs> uh, you got me pumped up. happens. <laughs> so, hey, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, like I said, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate what you do uh, in the profession, for the profession, and uh, really excited to, to hear all the great stuff that you're doing and, and, and really grateful that you were able to come on and, and tell the rest of us uh, you know, what it is you are doing and, and ex explain all of the, the great research and, and the GLAD program and, and just all of it, the guidelines. I mean, there are so many, I think, great points that you brought up that, uh, again, just very thankful. Thank you, Dean. It's been an absolute pleasure to to be on your, your show and, and also to have the opportunity to to elaborate on, on topics that, um, you know, we're both really interested in. So, cheers. Awesome. Bye for now. Well, that was a great interview with Dr. Matt Fernandez. Stay tuned for more great interviews coming up.